It's the Addicts Comedy Podcast, with your hosts, Millennial Heroin Addict, Andy Gold, and Baby Boomer Alcoholic, Curtis Matthews, two comedians with long-term recovery and marginally useful insight. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only and nothing said here should be construed as medical advice. Curtis and Andy are not trained clinicians or even very intelligent. Now, please enjoy the ramblings of these two big butter-filled fat sluts. Alright, another fabulous day in beautiful San Francisco, Lower Knob Hill. Not, uh, not Upper Knob Hill. What are the differences between the knobs, anyhow? Well, uh, what are the differences between the knobs? Um, I, or is it just one knob it, with different levels? You could actually call this the Upper Tenderloin if you wanted to. Um, so, oh, really? Or Upper Union Square if you want to. If you want to call it that. By the way, today Addicts Comedy uh, Podcast is brought to you by the good people at RecoveryComedy.com. If you're looking for a headliner that won't get drunk, start your place on fire, and get you sued, uh, talk to Rich over at RecoveryComedy.com. So I guess we just abandoned everything I talked about about how we were going to do the commercial later, and we just decided to do that right up top then. Huh? We should always do that commercial. Three times we should do that commercial. Let people know. Recovery and comedy. Oh, we're going to... Okay. Hey, th- this girl that I know that just got out of prison just sent me a Facebook message, so I'm going to talk to her while you talk to me. So, there you go. Okay, what was she in prison for? Um, I think she was... Uh, I-, I think she was hiding uh, drugs for her um, ex-boyfriend. Hell yeah. That's codependent right there. It is. She's a bit of a mess, but you know, I gotta, I gotta be of service anywhere I can. So there you go. Well, how are you being of service exactly? Um, uh, by telling her to uh, go to meetings and call a sponsor and uh, not, uh, you know, um, date that guy. How about that? Is that a good start? Yeah. Is it working? Um, I don't know. Like I said, she just got out of jail, and that's probably a lot more important than you asking me the difference in the knobs. That's all I'm saying. So I'm no, going to try to save I, somebody's I, life, and why don't you play with your little switches and stuff? Up a little radio show. How about that? <laughs> oh my gosh, Jesus. <laughs> okay. Um. So, how long was she in prison for? I don't know. Just like a, a couple months, I think. So, for holding drugs for her boyfriend. I, yeah, I don't know what this other charge was, man. I don't know. You want to put her on the show? We can put her on the show. Just out. Of, we should have a segment called "Just Out of the Pokey." How about that? People can come and tell us what's I mean, going if on. She, uh, if she's interesting and funny, then yeah, we can have her on the show. Yeah, but no, if she's, she's a just, tip- she's a typical addict like you. Well, she's we got can walk. To say. We can walk fifteen out- yards outside of your house and find one of these. Oh. Uh, yeah. Well, you remember you got to go like one hundred and fifty feet to uh, go to the bathroom. So that's disgusting, man. Like, I can't believe people just shit on the streets in this city. They, they don't have enough bathrooms in this town, man. I'm telling you. That's no good reason. They need to... Uh, Potty train the city. I, I don't know, man. Do you have any bright ideas about what San Francisco ought to do about it? Because it is a problem, man. There's, I think you should have more porter toilets. Just, you know... Um, I think you should have more porter toilets. Or, you know... Um, I, I think Starbucks is doing what they can. Uh... By letting people, you know, come in and go to the bathroom there, even if they're not customers. But other than that. So you think we, would, we should have, like, honey buckets on every corner, like Porta Johns? Uh, sure, that sounds good. I also just like... But to- isn't the concern, like, somebody who just smoked a bunch of sherm, like, going to lose it and tip it over and get shit all over the streets? Well, I think you can find a way to uh, make it 
um, not tippable, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think you affix it to the ground. They, they actually, they have these ones. This was the funniest thing. I said, it's not funny. It's more tragic than anything else. But they, they've had these bathrooms in San Francisco where you could pay like 50 cents for three minutes or something in there. But then, like, people would shoot up in there um, and they, yeah. they would have an attendant. But this was my favorite. Like, somebody, I went into one of those porta toilets and somebody had taken a dump next to the toilet. They had finally got into the toilet, Andy. They had yeah. paid their 50 cents, and then they just completely missed the mark. <laughs> so I don't know how that happens, but anyway. Well, a lot of them aren't just addicts. They're mentally ill. That's true. We used to have a, a better mental institution program in this country. Or maybe it was... Well, I read something, and if anybody's listening who knows better, correct me. I'm just talking out of my ass on this one, but... Uh, Basically, Governor Reagan back in the 60s just let all of the crazy people loose because he was tired of the government paying for mental institutions. I don't know where you read this stuff. You you think... I'll look it up right now. No, I'm just saying, like, Ronald Reagan, uh, like, somehow just went to everyone and said, well, uh, it's time to get on the streets, you That's the thing. When you, when you have an old comic, it's possible... <laughs> Are you asking Siri? Okay. Okay. No, but I mean, when you yeah, when you have an old comic, we do old impressions. Well, there you go again with your... All right, so... Cool. Yeah, President Gorbachev. Now I'm not doing a Reagan impression. That's good. According to PovertyInsights.org. Yes. Okay, so this is a, a non-profit. This is a .org. Now, I just learned that .orgs were non-profits. Uh, when I have... My website is .org, and yeah. the guy who builds it is like, you should not make it a... Well, actually, he didn't have the sense to tell me that. I had to figure it out on my own. But anyway, this is PovertyInsights.org. Okay. Did Reagan's crazy mental health policies cause today's homelessness? Interesting. Recently, a 34-year-old woman rammed her car into barricades outside the White House while her infant daughter was in the back seat. The police, thinking it was an act of terror, chased her down and shot her to death. Later, we learned she was actually struggling with mental illness. This came not long after another 34-year-old, this one a man who heard voices and thought people were out to hurt him, walked into the Washington Navy Yard and gunned down to 12 people. It is getting crazy out there, blah, 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 blah. Um, we don't want to, let's see, this is probably, okay. So over 30 years ago, when Reagan was elected president in 1980, he discarded a law proposed by his predecessor that would have continued funding federal community mental health centers. This basically eliminated services for people struggling with mental illness. Okay. He made similar decisions while he was the governor of California, releasing more than half of the state's mental hospital patients and passing a law that abolished involuntary hospitalization of people struggling with mental illness. This started a national trend of deinstitutionalization. Ah, so there you go. Well, it's interesting. Yeah. But I don't think you can blame it all on Reagan. That's what I'm trying I'm to say. I'm not trying to blame it all on Reagan, but... Uh, well, there, there you go again. Well, what, what would you chalk it up to? Uh, Talk into that mic, by how the would way. I chalk... How, what would I chalk mental illness up to? Not mental illness. The a homeless problem that's ravaging our cities, especially here in California. Well, we have a very lenient policy. The problem is, you know, this is what I know. If you And you know this, too, unless you want to get well. And I'm not talking about people with mental illness because obviously there's something going on up there. You sure. Know, and they don't, you know, and, and so they need meds and they need therapy. Um at the same time, you can't just lock them away and ask like they don't exist, you know. And I know there's families that struggle with it. And uh, uh, so um, how, how do you solve it? 
I, I think there needs to be access to better, cheaper, free, free medical care, obviously. Um, and then, yeah, there needs to be safe places for people to go. And I mean, it's a national problem. It's not like you can just shuttle it from city to city. I think in San Francisco, it's just, you know, this city has been willing to to uh, take on the issue and uh, and, uh, you know, confront it by saying, oh, look, this is the, the reality. And it's like we have yet to come up with an answer. So, yeah, what do you do with your what do you do with your mental patients and uh, and your drug addicts? Um, you try to get them help, but, you know, you got to want to help. If I gave a house to a, a number of these dudes on the street, they would just not get jobs and run around and poo in the houses. It wouldn't, you know, just them having a place, a roof over their head doesn't solve their issues. There's all sorts of other stuff that, that needs to go into it, I would believe. But, you know. Well, it's interesting. You, you know, you say San Francisco is the city that's taken it on and challenged it, but San Francisco's problem is the worst. Right. So, but, so no, where, I'm saying we San Francisco. Yeah, but I mean, so in so many cities, it's just well, we'll arrest people and we'll and we'll sweep it under the carpet. We're like going, no, here's the problem. Here it is. It's a national problem. Here it is. So we're not sweeping it under the carpet. So here. it's a national problem, but San Francisco is the one displaying it, saying here it is instead of hiding I, I it. I think this is endemic of the whole country, and we're just not, you know, we're not just arresting people and uh, and throwing them away and making the situation worse. We're like, well, how do we deal with it? And we haven't, we've yet to come up with an answer. So what if we were to arrest them and instead of locking them up and throwing them away the key, arrest them and. Uh, Spend that money on uh, treatment for them, if they so chose. Okay. You win. I don't think you're... Well, <laughs> I didn't realize this was a contest. No, no. Yeah. No, you win, Andy. Let's do that. Okay, Curtis, you seem rather despondent about that common sense. Well, we're solution. talking about social issues, and that's really, you know... I don't know. That's not the point of what we're doing here. It's like you're you're completely off the reservation. The deal is is when you start to make it political or say, here's my opinion on stuff. That's when we lose audience. And I just it's not the direction we want to go. Okay, I'll make it about me. If I were make it about you, if I were shitting on the street, this is better. (laughs) Okay, Um, I'm trying to think. I would rather be arrested. Would you quit touching your balls? Andy has this weird thing <laughs> where he touches his nuts with his left hand because he had nothing to play with as a child. E. I don't know why. I don't know why he does it. It's creepy. It's the spot my hand goes to. Oh, I'll come try on, man. Everybody- I shouldn't have to watch it during the show. <laughs> okay, I'll try to knock it off. Everybody in my life. It's weird. Every time you talk about the homeless, you touch your balls. It's weird. Whenever we talk about anything, dude, it's just where my hand goes. All I right. wish people okay. would stop harassing me and shaming me about it. Okay. Um. All right. You're right. We made that about social issues, but that kind of leads pretty nicely into what this uh, podcast is about. Uh, let's talk about the addicts on the street, then. All right. Okay. You just rolled your eyes. No, I mean, what about the addicts on the street? They should put together a shitty podcast, and uh, they should tour. <laughs> <laughs> That's what all addicts should do. In fact, like, let's say, for instance, Soapy downstairs has five minutes. I'll, we'll take him on tour with us. He's mm-hmm. got to be better than Ken Townsend. You know what I mean? Oh, man. Why'd you have to go after Ken? No, like I that? love I love Ken because Ken I can take a Ken joke. Too. That's why. If I'd said anybody else, they would have gone, oh, why are you making jokes like that? And it'd have been very sad. But, you know, Ken Townsend could take it. Can take it. He's a funny dude. Okay. When you were at the uh, the height of your alcoholism, how far removed were you from being a homeless person who defecates on the streets? Were, were you near there or was that a ways off for you? Um, I was, I wouldn't say I was a high bottom drunk. I was more of a, um, I, 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 here's my, one of my biggest issues was always being in relationships or looking for, 
you know, uh, females to fix me somehow. And like, I was always in relationships. So I remember like in the, in the, as I was bottoming out, I was living with a woman and I was paying rent with her. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I had a job I hated. Um, this was between, I was just starting to know that I wanted to do stand up, but I hadn't done anything about it. You know, when, when you really want to do something in life and you're doing nothing about it and it's eating at you, or there's something that would really make you truly happy and make your heart sing, but you're not doing it. Um, so the way to anesthetize, um, that means to make the pain go <laughs> yeah, away. Andy. the way to anesthetize yeah. was like, I would start drinking. So I remember I was between college and uh, moving to Los Angeles to do comedy. And like, I was selling cars just to make some money and I hated my life. You know, mm. I'm driving around in like a company car they gave me and I would drink before I go into my, into my house. I was just, you know, every single day. I mean, I had been busted in 82, uh, for drunk driving and I thought, okay, well, I'm not going to drink and drive. And then it was, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to drink, uh, you know, I'm not going to, uh, I'm not going to drink during, uh, I'm never, never going to drink. Then it was like, I'm only going to drink on weekends. Then it was like, I'm only going to drink on third days and whatever else. And then I was drinking most every day after I was done, but I don't, I don't think I was close to, I don't know. I mean, I was close to death more than I was just living on the street. So, you know, I always had, I've always had people, you know, that would enable me. And that's sad because, I mean, I, I look back at my behavior now and uh, probably a lot of them shouldn't. But um, you attracted codependent people. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. I, well, yeah, I mean, one of my coping mechanisms was to always be in a relationship because yeah. I couldn't deal with my own feelings on my own. You know, so, um, yeah, I always had some codependent around me um, to buy into my BS behavior. And uh, and then ultimately, um Ultimately, uh, yeah, that, I mean, then I had my that drunk driving accident and a crash. I almost killed people, and you know, and then I then I got sober. But um, I, wa I I wasn't that close, Andy. To answer your question, I was defecating inside of a house. If that makes sense. So, like most people, anesthetized is actually a term used by um, bird experts. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's when a different species of birds gather the materials using to make their nest. They are anesthetizing. So that's where you heard that word. Oh, thanks. Um, I know it was somewhere. I was never an official street person, but I, I, I don't think anyone's asking. Oh, Andy, did I say how close were you? No, I don't know if anybody's uh, fine. Do All right, Andy, how no, close? No, no, no. To... we can do an interview format. No, no, no. Let's okay. make it. It should always be you interviewing me. That's what this show is about. It's all about okay. me. Andy, tell me about you. Were you close to living on the streets and defecating? Well, do you do you really want to know? I do, actually. Now Here, I do. Let, let's just I would I... rather do this than how to solve the crisis and how I should vote on propositions. Yes. Well, that's I... the thing. So first, I accidentally talk about social issues, and you shit the bed there. And then you're like, let's talk about us. So then I start talking about us. And it's like, we're not fucking talking about you, Andy. Okay. Oh, I I pe if people will go back and play that. You'll never hear okay. me going, we're not talking about you, Andy. Okay. Your impression of me is the worst. All right. Um... Why are you in the mood for improv now? You aren't other nights. Yeah, you are. Improv. You're yes anding me. Okay. Andy, what about you? I was never uh, like an official street person. Jesus, this I... is boring. What else can we talk about? All right. <laughs> when you were first, uh, I mean, how severe was your alcoholism? Did you ever have I'm, like withdrawal? It's about you now. It's about you, Andy. How close? I'll shut up. I'm sorry. I don't know. You're getting frustrated with me. I don't know what to talk about. No, you. Oh, look. You, I are you getting sad? No, I just feel like. Uh, Andy, no. Let's talk about you. How close were you? Tell me about your bottom. Were you living on the streets? You were scoring uh, like dope. Is that what the kids call it? You were scoring, <laughs> you were scoring dope in the in the park from like creepy people and overdosing and shit, right? 
Um, I mean, you already know my bottom. I overdosed and died. Oh, I didn't know yeah. you died. It was, a te- you, you're, it was in my bio, temporarily fatal overdose. I didn't, didn't read me. your bio. I thought you were a Christian that had a little problem with <laughs> eating. <laughs> that line was added in there by you, unless some mysterious stranger did it on the Addicts Comedy page. Okay, after so you died. Temporarily. Yeah, yeah. They put Narcan in me and brought me back. I got you. But I was a goner there for a little bit. Um, no, I was a nice Mormon kid. But uh, after OxyContin started costing me $600 a day. Yikes. Yeah, I uh, took to, that's how a lot of uh, heroin addicts start out. They're addicted to prescriptions. Okay. I didn't get my prescription legitimately, though. I was a party kid. But I was with the street people. Mm-hmm. I was never a street person, but I was spending my days with them all of the time. Now, did your parents take you in? Were you living at home? Yeah. So my parents were kind of being codependent enablers. But they were in a tough spot because my brother died of an overdose. Oh, yeah. And they did, they did it right with him. You know, they said they, they had firm boundaries. So if you're going to continue to do this, we're not going to enable you in this way. We're not going to continue to bail you out. We're not going to continue to support you financially, et cetera. And then he went off and overdosed and died. Oh. So that really turned my parents off to, you know, the conventional wisdom. Oh, the tough love. The, yes. And the having boundaries. And they said, well, all of that, I, I don't know what to do. So we're going to really micromanage and take care of our other addict son, Andy. And that didn't work with me either. Because I also overdosed. Uh, fortunately, I overdosed in my parents' house, and they were able to call the uh, paramedics and everything like that. It was on my grandma's birthday, and they came over and uh, revived me and uh, brought me back. But as my parents continued to learn more about uh, recovery and the program and everything like that, one of the tough pills they had to swallow was the fact that there's actually nothing they can do. All right? Uh and that goes back to what we were talking about at the beginning. Like, as far as the addicts on the street, there's nothing that can be done uh, for the addict. They have to do the work themselves. All right? The work is theirs to do. But kind of digress a little bit. How close was I to being a street person? Uh, not very, because I always knew I could go back to my folks' house. That was always there. I always knew they were going to take me in. But that's how I spent my days with, like, these uh, like real grimy street people that were shooting up in their necks and stuff it's pretty messed up was that a bummer did i make you sad just then Uh, well you made it wasn't a bummer i'm just you know i have empathy for you because for as much as we mess around i care about you a lot and that's a lot to deal with especially for somebody that I, i can't even look at you right now especially for somebody i care about to hear that you came that close to dying and you not being because I think you're, I don't know, I just think you're an amazing uh, spirit and a funny dude and a great energy on the planet. And that, Yeah, and that made me sad. Your bottom I'm made sorry, me sad. Sorry. Yeah. It's okay. Yeah, it was a bummer. But, I mean, you want to talk about not getting ready yeah, to how much? Him. How much crack can I get? Actually, I'm <laughs> Curtis a, is on no, his phone doing a bit, everybody. I, uh, I've never done crack before. I don't know how it works. Do you buy it in a bindle? Do you buy it in a bunch? Do you get a box of crack? How exactly? Do you... I would be the worst drug addict. I swear to God. I would I would be the, hey, do you guys got any of that rocket juice that makes you all crazy? And, and they're like, what are you talking about, dude? And I'm like, you got the crack? You got the oxy? You got the crocodilia? What's with that crocodilia stuff? It, ma- it makes you eat yeah, people? Yeah, Matt. So I've been out of the... Uh... This is kind of where I'm learning. I got some more recovery under my belt because new new drugs are starting to surface where I'm like, I don't know anything yeah. about that. Well, I think it's you know? important. I mean, let's say, for instance, yeah. we we're going to have a podcast. We should probably know. Should probably... No, no, I, I know a thing or two about it because I've worked in treatment centers. Well, what's cro- what have you. Why would you do crocodilia? And the people take off their shirts. Well, and... 
eat people and stuff? No, it, it uh, rots away your skin to where it looks like a crocodile skin. That's is gross. what it does. It doesn't cause you to eat people like a crocodile. So it's like cotton candy. You do it for the same reason uh, that you drank and that I shot up. Um, because we didn't like ourselves and we had to escape from ourselves and this thing made us feel good. It gave us the good feelings. Okay. I imagine Crocodilia does <laughs> the same okay. thing. How, how bad? Okay. Uh, you know what, Andy? I got to be honest. She's, uh, and that's the level of addicts, too, and that's why I don't judge because we're all brethren. You know what I mean? We're all brothers and sisters. But that idea that you wake up and you think, you know what? Uh, are you touching your balls again? No, it's no, bothering I was, me. I was not. <laughs> go ahead. No, do you wake up in the morning and you go, uh, you know what I want to do? I want to look like a crocodile. I mean, who does that? I mean, no. how much into Peter Pan are you to, <laughs> that you would? Looking like a crocodile is not the motivator. What, All right. What? The... Why else would you take crocodilia? It says crocodilia. It'll, it'll, <laughs> it'll turn you into crocodile. Uh, crocodilia. All right, man. Yeah. Well, when you were drinking was it like oh my god this is gonna give me wet brain and destroy my livers this is gonna fill a maze no no no. you're not thinking of that i was kind of interested in wet brain and destroying my liver you know really? I first, when i first started drinking i thought you know what would be great is like a, a near fatal accident that almost kills people that's why i drank every day i go until i achieve that i will never stop no i hear what you're saying you're yeah. right it's a good feeling it's the we feel disconnected from we feel a hole in our soul and you know we fill it up with another outside uh, another outside fix and no, that's absolutely right. And I think it takes a little while to sort of come to that uh, realization of why we use and why we drink. And in the short term in recovery, I think what we're thinking about, at least me, was, okay, it's just caused me so much pain and shit and it's caused my family so much pain and hardships. I, d- I just want to uh, not have that anymore. I'm going to try to have a life where that's not my life. Uh but it takes a little while to sort of get to the bottom of, okay, what drove me to use in the first place? And it takes even longer to say, okay, now how can I build a better life for myself? Right. So like in the, the short term, in early recovery, do you remember, you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. When before you've had more like refined ideas on who you are and a better sense of yourself, yeah. your life is just, okay, I don't want to live in this like shitty tumultuous mess that's been caused yeah, by alcohol I I, well see here's here's what has been uh you know i don't know it's been a blessing in some ways i mean you don't look at that when you bottom out and you look at all the moments and seconds and higher power intervention or goodwill or whatever it is that saves your life um you know you're angry at the time and then you look back and go back at it and think that was the best thing that could happen to me and i i remember that accident I had was so horrendous uh, to me, you know, um, sliding through an intersection, um, drunk with uh, a rear wheel of my tire had flown off and I hit a center divider and I missed a, a car full of girls by just a few feet. Yeah. My life could have been so much different if I'd killed one of those girls or all four of those girls that right. were together and like, and you remember back in the, back in 84, it's like the old Volkswagen bug that has no protection and there were four girls in there and I could have like easily. Sure. So. Um, so I remember at any point, and this is 34 plus years on, I can, I can bring back the smell, the sound, the screaming of the girls, all of that stuff. So when people say to me, do you want a beer? I immediately go from beer to screaming Mm. or when I'm in a bar and I'm around, I don't look at stuff and think, oh, that looks delicious. I wish I could have it. I, I, I'll look at it like a bottle of vodka and go straight to the screaming or anytime, you know, and so that's what works for me. And even though. I didn't intend for that to happen. I fully know the consequences of my drinking. So 
it, when people say, well, I'm cured as an alcoholic, I don't care if people think I'm an alcoholic, like as a recovering alcoholic or a recovered alcoholic, or I don't care. It's not about them. But for me, I know it's too risky for me to drink. To think that I'm cured and can drink like a normal person, that's the insanity of most alcoholics. So I, for me, I know that. And I'm just not going to risk it because I don't go from, well, I can be a casual drinker to, uh, you know, that. But at the same time, yeah, every now and then, I I know I got an alcoholic brain because the thought will come in and go, well, you know, it's been so long, you could just have one. And I'm like, I don't want to, I don't want to risk it. Right. You know, somebody a couple of years ago um, uh, gave me a, a non-alcoholic beer. You know, and I'm like, I, I'm like, well, that's risky for some people. They won't even do it because it's too close to. And I had one sip of it, and I go, I don't even freaking like to taste a beer. I don't like to taste a beer. Right. And so what was I, the only reason I was drinking, honestly, was to get out of my feelings. It wasn't about the taste. Yeah. That's why I love people that are wine connoisseurs and God bless them. I know there's normal people that really like, but it's a drug. So, so, you know, it's like, look, I've smelled the cork of this uh, cocaine and it is much better than that cocaine. It's, it's a drug. So, you know, when people sit around and talk about. I don't know the pretend being pretentious with what. Oh, this is from France. Well, it's cocaine from France, or it's cocaine from Napa, but it's cocaine, you know. And so, um, you know, there, there's drug. It's a drug, and so you know, wines and it's wine in many ways is worse than beer in terms of alcohol content and stuff like that. So, I've just never wanted to go back, you know. Well, I want to touch on two things you just said. The first, like I know, said, the first thing you're touching on. Oh my goodness gracious! Call back. There has uh, to be some comedy in this depressing <laughs> trail of tears we're doing today. <laughs> no, in the um, in the regard to like wine connoisseurs and things like that, that's where I'm sort of grateful alcohol was never my drug of choice. Because I think alcoholics have it especially tough in recovery because there's this whole culture behind it that uh, is sort of thought of as being you know sophisticated and... Uh, upper crest, and a lot of them are, as you said, a lot of them are normal people who don't have problems. But there's that whole subculture of alcohol that certainly doesn't exist with heroin. Okay, there's no heroin connoisseurs that go to Napa Valley, you know, and uh, uh, analyze the different kind of poppies and taste Mm -hmm. it, and they don't have advanced degrees, and they're not aristocrats that are doing extremely well. They're all, like, when you think of heroin, you think of junkies, and that's pretty much all. Okay. Right. You're you're saying there's no heroin sommeliers. Correct. Right. And there's also no uh, beer culture. Like beer, you know, you see the Super Bowl commercials with the people partying. There's no commercials of like bikini babes on the beach shooting up heroin, tailgating. This is a good old time. You know, we don't have to deal with that. Okay. So this is, I mean, this is interesting in terms of like. Depending on where you're sitting on the Titanic, you know, to use that horrible metaphor, because uh, 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 we're all sinking, right? And, and it's having a different view. And I never thought of that as an alcoholic. I've never thought of that because as an alcoholic, right, um, I don't I don't look at those things and think, you know, that looks like a good time. And I'm, I'm, I'm only saying for if you're a normal drinker, yeah, might you had a good time. Every time you drank, you had a good time. You didn't get arrested. You didn't, you know, you stopped after a drink or two. You're normal. You know, the problem's never been alcohol and drugs, and we say that all the time. The right. problem is guys like you and me trying alcohol and drugs. Bingo. Um, so w- when I see when I see people enjoying alcohol, I'm like, good for them. Much like a diabetic who knows they can't eat cake doesn't walk into a bakery and go, I must have that cake. They know exactly sure. what that cake would do to them, sure. so they don't want that cake. They're just like, well, it's something else in the environment. Um, you know, it, it's sometimes when you look at a car, sometimes I see like really fancy cars, right? And I go, that car would be way too fast and way too dangerous to drive. You know, it's a good looking car, but it's not for me. 
You know, it's the same thing with like with with like uh, relationships and stuff like that. You look at a woman and go, you know, or or a man, whoever you're dating out there, everybody. But it's like too much for me, too much, too much uh, drama, too much. And the same thing. I I have empathy. Right. For people. And this is we're talking about where you're sitting, your view of the world. Um, I have empathy for food addicts. Because you have to eat every day. You don't right. have to drink alcohol every day. So a food addict has to, you know, have limits uh, and boundaries of what they eat and how much they eat. And they, and they have to be on it every single They can't fall asleep. You know, like a guy like me, right? I might go into a 7-Eleven and go, hey, that Snickers bar looks good. Or six, along with those snowballs. And I don't have to stop myself because there's no slippery slope to me eating all the snowballs. So I have empathy for food addicts. I'm like, well, how do you do that? Um, so... Even though you're saying that there's commercials are on, when I look at those commercials, I, I immediately, um, uh, I, I immediately, I'm in an ambulance. I see police cars. I see gas on the road. I see the destroyed car or whatever. I don't, I don't go, hey everybody, you know, look at Spuds McKenzie or the Budweiser Clydesdale. Every time I hear, you know, like, uh, like the Budweiser theme or whatever, um, I just. You know, I'm like, I, I think of drunk driving and accidents and stuff like that. I don't think of, hey, what a fun time to have in a football. Because I'm not a normal drinker. Yeah. So. so, and your brain has gone there automatically. You didn't have to it relate. Now. It does now. Yeah. Okay, so that's the point I was trying to make. At first, did you have to, because when I was in treatment, this is actually an exercise that they give to people in early recovery. When you have a craving, okay, think of the withdrawals. Think of your bottom. And then after a time, you'll actually condition your brain mm -hmm. to think of that automatically. And that's where I'm at now. I have a craving or something like that. They're you know, much more few and far between than they used to be. But now without even trying, automatically, yeah, good. No, my yeah, mind for goes me, to the horror. Because of that, yeah. yeah, because that accident was so horrendous, you don't really have to condition your mind to like go, was that accident bad? It was, was it so harmful? Yeah. Were people, you know, yeah, I was in an ambulance. I was, uh, you know, there were girls screaming. There was gas in a destroyed car. And, you know, there were lights everywhere. It, it was horrendous for me. You know what I mean? Some people might think that's whatever, Sunday at Indy 500. But for me, yeah, it was horrendous. Yeah, in a way, I mean, having a really kind of jarring bottom is an advantage, I think, because it's uh, easy not to forget. Um, my my most horrible times are really tattooed onto my brain. Yeah. Uh, I don't have to, you know, the same as you, I can smell the smells, I can see the sights. Um, you know, there's a few horror stories that I won't get into. Until that, other episodes. Until other episodes, you know, and then I also... But I would think certain for you... lights have the scars on my arm that never let me forget I, either. I, I would think that just the idea that you died on your parents in their house would be enough. You know what I mean? That's horrendous, Andy. It is. Yeah. And it's like, that's a horrible thing that your parents had to go through. And uh, losing your brother is a horrendous thing that your parents had to go through. Um, so I guess what I'm trying to get out, get at right now is why, like, all of the, the kids of the gold family are trying to kill the parents. That's what I'm, that's what I'm really trying to figure out right now. I met your brother. He's great. Now your, yeah. your other brother, he's normal. Is he never no addiction? Yeah. My other two brothers are the ones that are still alive. They're both, they're both normies. How interesting. Yeah. Don't you think, you know I mean? You got mm -hmm. two of you, uh, normal and two addicts. Yeah. Well, and, uh, a lot in my family, actually, uh, aunt and an uncle and, um, yeah, I had a lot more. of, I had a lot of alcoholic yeah. uncles. 
Yeah. So. And uh, it kind of sometimes it skips a generation. Like my dad, my dad was the most normal of all of them. My dad didn't have a drinking thing or a, um, I mean, my dad was a World War II vet and he smoked cigarettes and he also he liked to go to horse races, but you know he never gambled away the family stuff. There was mm-hmm. just you know he, he was pretty normal as far as parents go. So you know. I wonder with my family how many more would have been addicts had they uh, had they tried had they used or drank because my family is Mormon. Mm-hmm. You know, my parents just never did it. You know, that's uh, not that's not a bad way to keep from finding out. You know what I mean? No, it's not. Well, and it's uh, it's objectively healthy. Like, there's no doubt about that. Like, my parents are healthy folks, especially my dad. He he, he could afford to lose fifty pounds. Yeah, but that guy, you know. I met your dad. Yeah. He's in good shape. Yeah, he could take me, I'm pretty sure. Most people could take me. (laughs) Well. You can take me. I don't know. My dad. (laughs) Take me, Andy. (laughs) Yeah. My dad likes to brag about his fighting prowess. Oh, he looks like he was a scrapper back then. He was. He has all kinds of. When I was a kid, the way uh, he would teach us lessons were uh, about fights that he got into. The way he, he would often try to preach Mormon values to us, and the stories would end with him beating up an evildoer. Like. He has a story about beating he up was a, like a Mormon superhero. Yeah, like beating it. up a guy who tried to get him to watch porn. Yeah, <laughs> how dare you? Yeah, and then he said, "Where are you going, buddy? You're not gonna, you're not gonna watch this. You're too good for us, you know." And then I just he came at me and I just downed him. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Your dad solved all of his like uh, thoughts and issues with violence. Yeah, another one was a guy trying to get him to smoke cigarettes. And I said, "Hey, buddy, you're." <laughs> Yeah. Was that the same night they were smoking cigarettes and watching porn at some guy's house and he had to yeah. kill everyone? Describe the story. The guy taking off his shirt. He's like, and I'll tell you, this guy was Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's funny. Okay. And then he came at me and I picked him up and I threw him right on his car into the windshield. There's <laughs> <laughs> a guy that, the way my dad tells the story, he offered my dad smokes and my dad politely turned it down. That's funny. And he might have said, and the guy says, pull over. I'm going to teach this. S-O-B, only he didn't say S-O-B. <laughs> um, Maybe you would like to try my cigarettes. And you're like, no, that would, we can do that as a... But there, there's more to it than just uh, remembering the horror. That's really useful and important. But another thing that's just as important is uh, like actually making a good life for yourself, a life that's like worth living. What's that like? Um, You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> like, it doesn't have to... I actually think you have a good life. I wake up and you're in my front room. I don't know what happened to bring that hell upon me. You invited me to, oh, that's true. to make this podcast. The, and we're making art. It's the art of making art, putting it together no, no, bit have, by bit, inch look, by inch. Look, I, I don't have to get into, you know, I got to share with people stuff that you don't want to be shared, but you've built a good life for yourself. You have a successful business. True. Okay. You live in a place that I would call. You know, a city that's disgusting and falling apart. But you really, you really love it and enjoy it here. Yeah, dude, dude, I like hanging around in Rome as it's burning. It's you know, look, we'll talk about San Francisco later. But it's, okay. I don't know. But no, talk talk about that. Actually, going out and building a life for yourself, more than just you know, it's kind of the difference between recovery and abstaining. Okay, honestly, I think if you take direction from people that are further down the road that care about you. Um, you know, and you have dreams and you pursue them uh, truly, I, I think, you know, in terms of being happy acceptance, cause not everything works out, you know, not everything works out. And sometimes you make yeah. mistakes in recovery and that's okay. Cause that's human, you know, 
there's a lot of things that are human, like being upset about getting your car towed or being upset about the fact that you got to pay the IRS every year or being upset about the fact that, you know, um, your the uh, your neighbor downstairs is crazy. That's all normal life stuff. And so, you know, it's just getting back into normalcy and not it's getting you back to almost even with other human beings because sure. you had put yourself so far behind what just normal people do, which is not, you know, you don't go hump the air outside and slap somebody and steal money from them and overdose. And, you know, so it's getting back to normal. And I think if you, if you, I don't think that I honestly, I, I don't believe there's when people say that there's nothing you can't do. I know that's true. Cause I'm sure you wanted to be a basketball player and look at you, you know what I mean? It's I not a gonna, nice jump shot. Okay. Yeah. But you're not going to play professionally. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You can play basketball, but not professionally. Just like you always wanted to be a stand-up comic, and that's not going to happen either. <laughs> but, you know, everybody's got something. And so it, it's going along that path and following your dreams and, 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 and taking direction from people that do the things you want to do and learning and being willing to be uh, wrong and being willing to be humble. Um, and before you know it, that's what I'm saying. Within, I didn't know. You know, I really wanted to quit stand-up, you know. I mean, for years I wanted to quit because – the grass is always greener for me, you know. Mm. Comedy's hard work, uh, sure. especially a touring. Doing this podcast with you is hard work, you know what I mean? Because we have to schedule it and we have to do it. And, you know, I mean, there's um, nothing Nothing is free, right? Nothing is uh, – I mean, well, I guess God's love is free. Uh, but um, uh, it's, it's work, man. But the thing is, is one day at a time you put your foot in front of another and all of a sudden you go, hey, you know what? I'm doing okay. I'm doing okay. And God's been good to me, right, or whatever your higher power is. So what I'm hearing, and I like it, isn't so much building a great life for yourself as it, it's accepting what life is and learning how to appreciate it. I think it's given to you, honestly. You yeah. know, when they talk about the promises that uh, are in those business meetings, those those are true, you know? And I mean, yeah, I can make jokes about it, but they're true. I mean, you know a new uh, sense of peace, um, and you're you're no longer, you know, freaked out by things that you used to be freaked out by. Sure. Um, and, uh, and, and, and all of a sudden you go, wait, I got great friends that I can count on. I got, you know, a, a job that, uh, my, what's frustrating for me, Andy, is that honestly, one of the reasons why I'm self-employed and created my own business is because I, I would fire me if I had to work for anybody else, you know, and I've worked for people yeah. before I was in corporate America. I did software for years and I was a good employee then after years of being broken down. Uh, but the deal is when you're self-employed, you can't fire yourself. So you're like, man, I'm frustrated with that guy. And that guy is you, you know, yeah. <laughs> or that was a bad business decision and it's all on you. And so I don't know. Being self-employed um, is uh, it's a blessing and a curse. Right. Uh, but I love it. And uh, so building a life, I think it just means doing the next right thing putting one foot in front of the other next right thing every single day is not using drugs or drinking alcohol and then taking direction. And if people, if you want a certain type of job, you study for it and you get the job. If you want a certain type of, uh, you know, career, um, take direction from those people. Um, and, uh, one day at a time, if you if you show up and you do the best you can, you'll get really good results. That's what I've found. All right. Awesome. I think, uh, now is a good time for a commercial from recovery comedy. <laughs>
Hey, everybody, if you're looking for a clean and sober stand-up comedy, go to recoverycomedy.com, everybody. Hey, not only are these people that can work at any of your crap clubs all over America, but you know what? They're not going to steal stuff from you, and they're probably not going to have sex with it. Well, they might have sex with the staff, but the deal is they're really talented and funny people. Go to recoverycomedy.com and ask for Rich, R-I-C-H. You know, it's weird. Ironically, he's not rich, but he does well, and he's willing to help you. www.recoverycomedy.com. And now back to the show. Ugh. That was great, dude. <laughs> I'm sorry I didn't mean to make the noise. No, it's disgust. okay. No, that was lovely. We hug each other. Yeah. Okay, but uh, one of the last things I want to talk about before we get to the mailbag is, uh, and this kind of you've been to touching your mailbag all day. I'm not touching it right the now, lady. Jack. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. All right. Is uh, we've talked about some of the principles, like some of the basic, like an important uh, principles in recovery. And how our thinking, I think, needs to be based on those principles more than the situation we're in or the circumstances we're in, and how that's not always super, super easy. You know, p- placing the uh, principles of our recovery above uh, the folks that we might uh, might be in our proximity. You know, sometimes we're not always in total control of uh, the folks in our proximity, uh, circumstances, situations, things like that. You know, so like uh, some of. Uh, some of my principles uh, are different than the situation. The situation I'm in is uh, I'm in a city that's basically a giant methadone clinic, okay, and <laughs> and it smells like an old fly fishing shop of mothballs and uh, cheap cigarettes outside, and uh, always ambulances and sirens and people screaming. So that's my, my, my those are my circumstances right now. That's my situation right now. And if my thinking was based purely on that. Oh my goodness gracious! Would there ever be a relapse right around the corner? So, I always try to keep my thinking based on my principles. What are my principles? Okay, um, be honest. That's a simple one, but that's a big one. Uh, when you're honest with yourself and with others, uh, that makes your perception of the world a little bit more accurate, and it can help you be a little bit more hopeful and uh, uh, a little bit more. Um, oh, what am I looking for here? What do you want to call it? Um, determined, I guess you could say. Or um, uh, refined. Okay, when you're, when you're honest with yourself and with others, your uh, view of your circumstances in the world. Oh, my goodness gracious. We have to edit that out because my thoughts were not keeping up with the, my words were not keeping up with my thoughts. I had a great thought there, Curtis. Yeah. And it just turned into total word salad mishmash of dog shit. I felt like I was almost wise there. For oh, that's all right. I, I was sleeping during that. <laughs> I don't know what the hell you said. but Talking about principle thinking versus situational based. Actually, thinking. I know. I was here. I was acting like I was. Uh, oh, okay. okay. First of all, I mean, or you could look at it a different way, right? It's always, you know, how you want to look at things. You could go, uh, wait a minute. Um, I, I, I'm in the most desirable city in America um, with the um, highest uh, property rate and the lowest um, occupancy rate. And uh, it's uh, um, the the normal one bedroom in this neighborhood goes for thirty four hundred a month because people can afford it. So I'm in the Disney world of America right now. And I want to complain that it smells like fly fishing and balls. So, (laughs) you know, yeah, you could say that. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you could go. I'm I'm in I'm in uh, I'm in fantasy land in Disneyland and I'm going to be happy about it. San Francisco's cool. I I guess I, I have a tendency to complain about whatever city I'm living in. Well, it's not funny it's, if it's nice. That's exactly Nobody's right. Nobody's going to laugh. I mean, if you yeah. said 
man, you know, um, uh, wow, I can have there's eight Starbucks within two square blocks. Wow, sure, I can have anything I want twenty four hours a day here. Wow, beautiful there's architecture. A, there's a drugstore uh, yeah. a block away if I need some ice cream. Uh, you know, um, I don't know. It's like I can get Indian food delivered to me at midnight. You could say that, or you could go. It smells like flat fishing. The people with the cheap cigarettes. You know, I don't know. So it's a bit, it, it really is. Either you can focus on the positive, you can focus on the negative. You can focus on what you have, you can focus on what you don't have. And I'm not going to do the bottle half empty metaphor, but I am going to tell you, if you focused on good stuff every single day, like for instance, right, I don't really talk about politics. I listen, I learn, but I don't, I don't care. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, I don't care if you disagree with me, if you're a good person, I don't care. I'm not, there's no civil war happening in America. It's a bunch of Americans. We're all Americans and we disagree. That's yeah. as political as I'm going to get with you. And it's like, I, I'm not going to fight you over what you look because it's just politics and it doesn't matter at the end of the day. What matters is, and this is the thing you and I and Luntum were talking about the last time we were out, was, you know, I got to take care of my own business. I got to be a decent yes. person today. If I take care of my part of the world, right, I'm not the problem. I'm not part of the problem, whatever the problem might be. So, you know, um, and, and so I stay focused on me, right? I try to be a good person. I try to, you know, I try to show up and be a friend to Andy when it is hard. It is hard to be friend with a man that touches his penis that much. It is, <laughs> it is a struggle. Anyway, <laughs> Well, that's what I was trying to get at before my words became a, just a total conglomeration of utter and total uh, disorganized, messy shit. You know, conglomeration is a term they use in hunting birds. Oh. No, I'm kidding. Go okay. Ahead. But no, that, that is what I do have control over is those certain principles. Am I ethical? Am I honest? Uh, the people I interact with that day, am I going to be a positive or a negative? Okay, am I going to make them laugh? Am I going to be, uh, to use a term like a Sunday school type term, like a light in the room? Okay, those principles control over me. How am I affecting my immediate uh, environment? I always have control over that. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was, I'm sorry. I was dozing That's again. That's all I, I was, got. No, all it sounds right. good. Okay, this was fun, huh? Well, we got to get to the mailbag. We should do yeah, this again. This one actually was a good one. All right, it was better. Admit it. Admit it. Okay, I think you and I are finding you and I are connected on a deeper level. If We're, that means anything, of course it means something. That's the whole point. And this is stop yelling. Okay. All right. Let's get to the mailbag. But first, admit that we're we're getting better. This is getting good. I want to hear it. You're going to be like your dad. Well, he wouldn't admit we got better, so I punched him in the kisser. No, I just know you. I just know you. Yeah, know we're it. getting better. Okay. All right. The mailbag. All right. This is from Jeanette in. She an ex? Uh, she one of my exes? No, this right. is from Jeanette uh, from Portland. She has a, a question for you. Because all my exes live in Texas. Goodness gracious. All right, go ahead. She's in Portland. Okay, well, I'm just going to say. That's Mark Lundholm country there. Oh, is it? They love Mark in Portland. Okay. Um, what do you do in uh, social gatherings when everybody is uh, drinking and having fun and uh, you're in early recovery? Okay. Um, I tell them what you're doing is evil and ultimately will end up in drunk driving accidents. No, I, what I do is um, when I was early in recovery or uh, sobriety for AA people, if there are any, um, I, uh, um, I, I, I if I really any. felt nervous about a situation, I didn't go, you know, I, I think maybe only like in my first six months did I notice that people were drinking around me and, um, uh, I kind of missed it or something, you know what I mean? 
Um, but I would take myself out of those situations. So when I go to social gatherings now, I'm honestly, I'm happy because there's always something for me. You know what I mean? Like I, I can eat more spinach dip if I want. Um, mineral water, I think is cool. I like, you know, I have like a good bubbly water. Um, I like sparkling, uh, sparkling cider is delicious. And people know when I come, this guy's, you know, he's not going to drink stuff. So, you know, recently I went to a friend's like Rich, uh, from recoverycomedy.com, everybody recovery comedy. I went to Rich's birthday party and like a lot of his family, they like beer and they're, they're not drunk. They just like beer. They're drinking people. And I didn't sit there and go, ah, I wish I had beer. I was like, he also, you know, he had seven up for me and sparkling water and stuff like that. And like, you know, I don't know. I don't get weirded out. But early in recovery, what I tell you is if you if you feel like you're in danger, call somebody or remove yourself from the situation. Call somebody or remove yourself from the situation. And what I mean by that is if you have to leave, you have to leave or just tell your friends who love you. It's like, listen, I'm having some issues here. And it's like, OK, you know, or whatever. Call somebody on the phone and go, I'm thinking about doing it. And they're like, you're going to give away this good feeling and this potentially huge future just so you can have, you know, um, a Mickey's Big Mouth with your buddy. Don't be silly. And you're like, okay, I get it. That's right thinking. But, you know, that's why we're connected. That's why there's a big network of people. We can talk to each other. We can rely on each other. And if you if you really feel like you're in a jam, um, feel free to send an email to Andy because I'm too busy to answer. I'm a big deal. Okay. Are there any emails for me? Huh? Oh, yeah. Uh, this one is. <laughs> who, was that Jeanette in Portland? Yeah. This is from Sandy in Portland. That's weird. Um, Sandy uh, wants to know, uh, when did you, when, be other than, how, how many times, <laughs> how many warning signs did you have uh, before um, your overdose that you knew you were done? How many warning signs? Warning signs. signs. That you didn't pay attention to. Um, well, that's interesting. I think, you know, uh, th- that last year or so, I was over the warning signs. I knew what they were. But early on, when it was starting to get, uh, when things were starting to escalate, whenever I was in kind of denial about the warning signs, was um, by, by the time I was shooting up heroin, I knew I was a junkie. But it was easy for me to deny it first with OxyContin because that was a prescription uh, painkiller. I was ignoring that I was uh, buying them off the streets. Yikes. I was ignoring... Um, and you had no idea what was in that stuff, really. The OxyContin, I did. You know, you kind of know what that is. Oh, that's just a, that's a hard pill? Is that a hard pill? Yeah, 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 okay, yeah. Right. yeah. Um, it's basically synthetic heroin. But, you know, when I was no longer getting it at school and at parties and now I was uh, seeking it out, mm-hmm. that was probably the first warning sign. That I justified by saying I just prefer to feel good on this even when I'm not partying. Mm-hmm. Um, other warning signs I started to ignore is when that became the priority when my paycheck came. Mm-hmm. You know, that was a head of bills and stuff like that. And that uh, even when I got arrested for it, uh, for uh, shoplifting to get money for it and everything like that, I ignored those warning signs by blaming society, by saying it shouldn't be illegal. What the hell is it to them? Right. These are silly laws. It's not my problem. Uh, some people like to, uh, you know, go fishing. Some people like to take pills. Okay. Right. So you thought it was yeah. a hobby or in your mind. You made yeah. That it's a hobby. But by the time I started slamming heroin, by then I had been arrested enough times and the addiction was uh, out of control enough to where I knew I was a junkie. And now it was just sort of, uh, you know, I'll be alive for a few more years and that's that. Yeah, yikes. Yeah. So... But no, there were plenty of warning signs, and in the uh, the addicted mind, you know, you'll do all kinds of mental gymnastics to justify it. 
even though they're incredibly obvious that uh, you have a problem. So, oof, it, it, it's really hard to give tips to like anybody in active addiction who's ignoring those warning signs because they're so irrational. And uh, reasoning with the uh, the addicted mind is one hell of a challenging thing, you know. Well, that's a good thing, Andy. Is like most people that are in active addiction probably can't figure out how to download our podcast, so we're probably safe. This is for our fellow people in recovery slash sobriety. All right, everybody. All right, everybody. That was a good one. <laughs> You're a good one. Good night.